Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. Welcome back to another episode of Lunchtime Movie Review, the podcast where we look back at some of our childhood favorites and see if they stand the test of time. I'm Bobby. I'm Chris. I'm Matt. <laughs> and I'm Patrick. <laughs> Apparently, I'm I don't dramatic know the pause, Matt. <laughs> I'm still learning my letters, guys. Give me a break. <laughs> so you're thinking about that alphabetical order there for just one second? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm thinking M. Let's see, Patrick. Well, that starts with a, a, a P. All right. <laughs> Well, take the fork with the cork out of your mouth for a little bit and start paying attention to the podcast. Every podcast needs its own rubric, the monkey boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, and for today's episode, we are reviewing Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, as rep- referenced by Matt earlier, uh, directed by Frank Oz and starring Steve Martin, Michael Caine, and Glenn Headley. But first, a word from our sponsor. Are you tired of the boring French Riviera? You ready for a new adventure? Ready to get in on the ground floor of a hot new investment? Well, Jackal Cruise Lines has seats open on its summer 1988 Nigerian real estate investment cruise. We're currently showing a quaint 250-square-foot villa that belonged to a distinguished prince. Deposits of $50,000 are due at sign-up, which includes a mosquito net and a complimentary eye patch. So we'll see you there. <laughs> Is fork included? Yes, but it's corked for safety. <laughs> for safety. Safety first. That, that disclaimer in there. All right, so our summary, Mr. Chris, you up? Yes. All right. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. British conman Lawrence Jameson swindles rich women out of money on the French Riviera for a living. With the help of a corrupt inspector named Andre and a humble manservant by the name of Supreme Chancellor Arthur Palpatine, Lawrence (laughs) seduces wealthy and morally corrupt women to the dark side, taking their money with him. While he can pick and choose the women he steals from, reports of another con man in the area known only as the Jackal threatens his scheme. On a French train ride home to Beaumont-sur-Mer, Lawrence meets American Freddie Benson, a small-time hustler who's out of Lawrence's league, or so Lawrence thinks. Freddie is a loudmouth, and he brags to Lawrence on how he cons women for little bits of money. Since Freddie's inexperienced antics are getting him press attention as the jackal, and not wanting Freddie to scare off his prey, Lawrence has his pal, Inspector Andre, arrest Freddy and give him a one-way ticket out of town. However, on that flight home, Freddy meets one of Lawrence's clueless victims and rightly deduces that Lawrence is not only a crook, but a much better one than he is. Freddy returns to Beaumont-sur-Mer and blackmails Lawrence in teaching him the ways of the dark side. Lawrence reluctantly agrees and teaches, and teaches Freddy how to look and act the part. Eventually, he invites Freddy to partake in the scheme as his mentally special brother, Rupert. 
This allows Lawrence to scare off the women after he seduces them and take their money. However, when Freddy learns he's not getting any percentage of the profits, he leaves to make money for himself. Lawrence is not willing to hand over any portion of his cash, cash cow to Freddy, and the two eventually agree to a bet. The first one to con a woman out of $50,000 wins, and the loser has to leave town. As they make the bet, a naive American soap heiress, Janet Colgate, stumbles into their hotel, and they pick her as their mark. Freddie strikes first, posing as a wheelchair-bound U.S. Navy veteran who needs to borrow $50,000 so psychiatrist Emil Schofhausen can cure him of his psychological block that keeps him in a wheelchair. <coughs> Lawrence is on to Freddie, so he, so he poses as Emil Schofhausen and only agrees to treat Freddie if Janet pays him the $50,000 fee. Much conning goes back and forth between the two men as they try their best to swindle the innocent Janet. However, once Lawrence discovers Janet isn't actually a soap heiress to a large fortune, but a simple woman who won a soap contest, and she's liquidating all her assets and borrowing money from her father to pay for Freddie's treatment, Lawrence calls off the bet. Freddie, not wanting to give, give up, counters with a new loser leave town bet. The first one to stoop Janet wins. And Lawrence accepts. During the course of the bets, Lawrence taunts Freddy in his wheelchair. This angers some British sailors one night when they see this mistreatment at a club. And later that night, as Lawrence and Freddy agree to their new bet on the drive home, they come across the sailors in a van blocking the entrance to Lawrence's place. They grab Lawrence and drive off to put him on a plane out of town. Freddie takes this opportunity to drive back to the hotel and prove his love to Janet by standing up and walking over to her. Amazed at Freddie's progress, Janet gets Freddie to walk into the bedroom where they will make some sweet, sweet love. Unfortunately for Freddie, Lawrence is there watching and shows himself right before Freddie can work his magic. Lawrence declares Freddie cured. Page four. <laughs> He and Freddie leave Janet to her room where he explains that the sailors let him go after he revealed to them that he is a Royal Naval Reserve officer. Lawrence drops Freddie off at the sailors' hotel room and asks them to keep Freddie occupied for the night. Meanwhile, Lawrence takes the time to put Janet on a plane to Cleveland. Instead of taking that plane out of town, Janet gets off of it before it leaves and returns to her hotel room, hoping to find Freddie there. Guess what? He's there, and she tells him she returned because she loves Freddy. The two kiss and go to the bedroom. She asks Freddy to close the blinds and begins unbuttoning her blouse. Inspector Andre has been snooping, and he spots Janet's return and follows her. He sees that Freddy closed the drapes to the hotel room and suspects the worst. He and Lawrence surmise that Freddy has won the bet, and Lawrence prepares to accept defeat gracefully. However, before Freddie returns, Janet arrives in tears. Freddie stole the 50000 her father sent and then split. Lawrence sympathizes with Janet and gives her 50000 to make up for her loss. He then calls Andre to arrest Freddie and takes Janet to the airport before she can get into any more trouble. Before the plane departs, she jumps out of it and returns Lawrence's bag, refusing his generous gift. She then departs in the plane as Andre arrives with Freddie in handcuffs and wearing nothing but a bathrobe. 
It turns out that Janet stole his clothes, his wallet, and all his money. Lawrence opens up his bag to find Freddy's clothes in it and a note. Janet admits to taking both men for their money and signs it the jackal. Freddy is enraged, but Lawrence smiles with admiration. A week later, Freddy and Lawrence sit at at Lawrence's villa talking about Janet as Freddy prepares to leave. As they say their goodbyes, the jackal arrives in a Greek, Greek yacht posing as a New York real estate developer. She prompts Freddie and Lawrence on their roles in her latest scheme as an Australian real estate tycoon and his mute right-hand man. When their rich marks head off to Lawrence's estate, Janet tells the boys that she made three million last year swindling people, but their 50,000 was the most fun she had. The new partners lock arms and head off to fleece their latest victims for a happy ending. The end. Uh, let's see. So, movie stats. Mr. Patrick, you're up. All right. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels was released on December 16th, 1988, a Christmas present to the world. Uh, it was released on the same day as Rain Man, Torch Song Trilogy, and I'm Going to Get You Sucker. And if you can find an even more diverse selection of movies to be released on the same day, you'd be hard-pressed to do so. Uh, it was released the same you month. guys remember the Ghetto Olympics? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get you, sucker. Yes, I do. Uh, Same month as Twins, uh, The Naked Gun from the Files of Police Squad, Working Girl, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, Beaches, and Matt's favorite film of all time, My Stepmother is an Alien. Uh, Grossed over $42 million at the box office, was the 24th highest grossing film of 1988, right behind Colors. Young Guns and Biloxi Blues and right in front of The Great Outdoors, Tequila Sunrise and Big Business was nominated for one Golden Globe, a best performance by an actor in a motion picture comedy or musical. And that would have been Michael Caine, who ultimately lost to Tom Hanks for Big, uh, was ranked number 85 on Bravo's 100 Funniest Movies list. Itself is a remake of a 1964 film, uh, Bedtime Story, which starred David Niven, Marlon Brando, and Shirley Jones. Uh, It was adapted for a Broadway musical in 2005 uh, with John Lithgow playing Lawrence and is being remade again with with female leads Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson in the film The Hustle uh, to be released today. Uh, Shane's favorite category, although not a part of the podcast today, Rotten Tomatoes, 89% critics and 84% audience. And that is the number on or numbers on Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Some pretty decent movies that year. Yeah. And I'm surprised Steve Martin wasn't one of the nominations. I, you know, it it's it, international. Michael Caine is, you know, British. So the yeah. Golden Globes is the foreign press. So I, I think that the, if you have a little bit of diversity, you have a better chance at that. And wasn't he nominated for screenplay for Roxanne like the year before? 87. Yes. So. But it, but not Oscar. So, yeah, they're, it's like he gets slighted whenever anything good comes up for his roles. So, who's watched it and when? Matt, let's start with you. Watched Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Yes. Nor Roxanne, either one. <laughs> watched it many times. <laughs> what was your first time watching it? Oh, gosh. I mean, I was a kid. Uh, I remember watching this with my dad probably back when it came out on VHS in 1988, 89-ish. And I remember laughing hysterically at Dr. Emil Schaffhausen III. <laughs> um, this this movie has been a staple 
of mine, you know, since I was just seven or eight years old, I think. I think. So I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this movie, but I still enjoy it. Uh, I did not see it in the theaters, although I really liked uh, Steve Martin in that at that period of time. I still like Steve Martin, but uh, I caught it on video once it came out. Probably if he came out in December of '88, probably sometime in '89. Um, when I and I started working in my first video store, I think the end of '89, so probably around then. Oh, I still remember seeing it in the theater when it came out, and uh, I still remember being surprised at the ending because I was not, I wasn't paying attention, I guess. And um, it, it's always cracked me up. To this day, I still ask if I can go to the bathroom and make that stupid smile. Uh, <laughs> that we're getting to a point where a lot of people don't get it anymore, yeah. but that kind of makes it funnier to yeah. me. My wife hates it when you do that, Chris. So I just want you to yeah. <laughs> Well, I creep her out in general, so I could see that. I'm pretty sure if I asked any of my brothers, may I please go to the bathroom? Every single one of them would know exactly where I was going with it. <laughs> yeah, this is quoted in my house as well. I, I watched it. I, I never saw it in the theater, but I saw it when it came out on VHS. And uh, I'm with you, Matt. It's been a staple ever since. My To the point where my kids now, it's a staple in their lives. So they're they're quoting Ruprecht and and Dr. Schofhausen quite often. So uh, Patrick, you mentioned that there was this was a remake to the 1964 bedroom story with David Niven and Marlon Brando and Shirley Jones. Has anybody seen that? No. It was it was called Bedtime Story. Uh, Bedtime and, Story. And no, I didn't even know it was a remake until doing the research for this podcast, and then I went looking for it and could not find it. That seems like a very interesting pairing to me, David Niven and Marlon Brando. Yeah. Uh, I think it's got potential to be pretty good, although reviews I've heard say that this one was the better version of the two. Oh, well, during the – when we were planning for this, I did come across a copy of Vetram's story. Uh, it's actually on YouTube. You can find it, oh. uh, the, the full version, and I watched it, and you will be shocked at how similar these movies are. It's basically they peeled the best parts of Bedtime Story and put it into Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and changed the end. It's very similar, and especially watching David Niven and Marlon Brando play the Martin and Kane characters, it is a a hoot. Um, Especially Marlon Brando, you know, everybody recognizes him as the godfather and, you know, the older, you know, heavier guy. In this one, he's the young whippersnapper, you know, talking, calling him dad through the whole movie. It, it's it's a completely different Brando that you've ever seen. So, oh, really family of Omaha. <laughs> oh, he's holy. Oh, you want to stop for 50,000 big ones? <laughs> he does talk. It's pretty funny. You got to watch it sometime. If you guys get a chance, please do watch it. It's It's worth it. But back to Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, uh, what did you think of Steve Martin? Let's start with Patrick. Uh, you know, Steve Martin it could do no, almost no wrong in the 1980s and from my mindset. I, I love Steve Martin. Ironically, though, this is one of my uh, – of the 80s is one of my least favorite Steve Martin films. At the time, I really didn't like it that much. I, I wanted more Steve Martin and less Michael Caine. And I don't know if you guys ever saw the trailer for this film, but the tra- the original trailer mm-hmm. was, to me, was hilarious. 
and I felt the film didn't kind of live up to that. It was the kind of uh, somewhat of a misdirect with the two of them walking along the Riviera, just being very gentlemanly, and and then a, a dialogue going from a narrator, and then them Steve Martin pushing a woman into the into the ocean, and uh, um, Michael Caine putting I think it's cotton candy or ice cream into a kid's face. And I, I remember seeing that in the theater and just laughing hysterically. And then when I saw the film, it was like, ah, you know, the, the Steve Martin character wasn't as likable. And I always liked Steve Martin as a likable character. I, I found that I liked Michael Caine much better. Steve Martin was the jerk. So I kind of wanted him to fail. And I think that's why ultimately I didn't enjoy it as, at as much in its time. Well, I think that uh, Steve Martin had a little bit more subtle humor at, at a lot of times in this one. You know, like when the Michael King goes to get him from the from the sailors and Steve Martin's just standing there in the doorway and you realize why he's standing in the doorway pretty quick. And that little scene, it's very subtle humor that I think if you're expecting more that that trailer, I think, is a little bit more slapsticky. Um, outgoing comedy as opposed to the humor that they actually presented in the film. So I could definitely see why Patrick was disappointed in it. But Steve Martin's great. I never tire of his films. Patrick, you don't care for Three Amigos as much, though, do you? You're not a fan of that one? I'm not a big fan of Three Amigos either. Yeah, I didn't think so. But, um, you know, anything that Steve Martin was doing in the late 80s was great to me. Well, you know, I don't typically like slapsticky, and and although I will agree that there's some nuance and there's some more subtle humor in this, uh, you know, Michael Caine getting a running start to whip him in the legs, <laughs> I don't I, I don't find that as subtle humor. I find that very slapsticky and uh, it somewhat has solid gold. Yeah. <laughs> did you not Did you not like that part? No, I did not. Uh, that's one of my least favorite oh. scenes in the film. Uh, there, there, and uh, uh, let me I tell you. As I've gotten older and watched this a few other times, I've learned to like it. And there are th- certain things in the film that I, 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 I've liked. I like the film much better now than my first impressions of it. It was not the film I expected to see when I saw it in probably 89. And that's why I think I disliked it at its time. Plus, uh, around the same time was also you know, 1989, the summer of 89, you had Parenthood come out. And I thought that was an outstanding Steve Martin film. And uh, and I think that's I think it got overshadowed because I probably saw them pretty close together because I know I saw I saw Parenthood in the theater. And that was the summer of 89. Well, Matt, you were on the Parenthood podcast with us when we Mm -hmm. did steve martin and so you saw that steve martin in parenthood versus steve martin here do you see a difference between the two or which one did you like better well i so i'm not a huge steve martin fan Um, what no geez next thing you're gonna say you don't like star wars (laughs) (laughs) so this is this is one of the times i like steve martin a lot more I thought he was good in Parenthood when he wasn't being Steve Martin, if that makes sense. The cowboy? Yeah, I mean, the cowboy scene was just drawn out. They could have cut the whole thing more or less, and I would have enjoyed the movie more. I think he's good in this one, though. I I, I like him. I think he's funny. Um, And I kind of think it's good that he has Michael Caine there to balance him out a little more. So this this is probably my favorite Steve Martin performance. Wow. That's that's high praise, actually, especially for a non-Steve Martin fan. Well, I I really like Steve Martin. Um, I've said 
before that Roxanne is my favorite movie of all time, which he wrote and starred in. This one here is – I just think Steve is is the – not only the comic relief. I think he's just – he's I, – I think – uh, Michael Caine is the heart and soul of the story, but I think Steve Martin is the choo-choo that keeps the story moving along. He's he's just that wild card that keeps everybody on their toes. So I just I really enjoyed him in this uh, this role. So it's not a clinical Steve Martin, but I think it's a lot of fun to watch him play these roles. And the Ruprecht character was just inspired. And it, once you watch the bedtime story, I'll refer back to it probably a bit more in the podcast. But if you watch this, you will notice, especially from the, the Brando character, Marlon Brando is a multi Oscar winner. Everybody, you know, he's one of the all time great actors and he plays the same exact character as Steve Martin. And I think Steve Martin up, up the ante, for the character. He even plays the Ruprecht. The Brando plays the Ruprecht character a lot like what Steve does, but Steve is better. Who's better in a red Speedo? Uh, Steve Martin or Marlon <laughs> they, they Brando? Don't, they don't do Speedos back then. They just they wore the boxer short things. Uh, but the um, as far as... You even gotta ask. <laughs> <laughs> in a wheelchair, however, uh, I will say Steve Martin is a better wheelchair than uh, Mar- Marlon Brando, but Brando will give a much better... He will give all his effort in the old wheelchairs. It's pretty funny to watch him in that. So um, let's go to uh, Michael Caine. What did you think of him? Let's go Chris. Well, you know, I think secretly he is Darth Pelagus the Wise, and his his nice little servant is Palpatine, and this is this is just the beginning before the the fall. That's what I think. This that's my Star Wars prequel theory. But uh, yeah, he he's excellent in this role. He's a great straight man, especially to to Steve Martin. He plays the sophisticated swindler who does not mind being topped by the Jackal. And I think he's excellent playing against both Steve Martin. And um, why am I forgetting the actress's name right now? Glenn Headley. And and playing against uh, Steve Martin and Glenn Headley, yes. I I really like him. I I think he's funny. He's got really good timing. He he meshes really well with Steve Martin. And, um, you know, I I couldn't – I don't – think anyone else is going to play this better than him especially opposite steve martin so i think he was perfectly cast um and um i think he play, he plays the comedy really well well far be it for me to uh, criticize uh, one of my fellow podcasters but i'm gonna out nerd chris and say it's not uh Dar- darth Pl- plagius it's plagius Plagueis, is that yeah. the, to make an analogy? But uh, no, I love Michael Caine. Uh, I, I and I especially like Michael Caine in comedy. I think he does have some really good comedy chops. He 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 did do it in the '80s a little bit more than he does now. Um, he, and there were ups and downs. I think I, the, either the same year or the year before he did Without a Clue, which I don't think is a good Michael Caine comedy. But I, I think this he's really good. But he's he, you know he's He's playing the straight man to Steve Martin. You know, that's what he's, you know, he's the Martin to his Lewis. And it's not as rewarding. I don't think you get as much appreciation um, for playing the straight man. But I think he does a really good job in this. And as much as Chris talks about 
the subtle humor of Steve Martin. I think the humor of Michael Caine in this film is much more subtle, other than the scene where he's whipping Steve Martin in the <laughs> legs. Comedy gold. <laughs> keeps, it is. You can keep saying it, but that's fool's gold. But that's <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, and that's and that's why I I like him in the film is that uh, that little bit more subtle, less slapsticky. Uh, Steve Martin, as Matt says, being Steve Martin has more of the slapsticky elements in this film as far as comedy. He has some subtle stuff, but not he, he still bleeds through as his normal wild and crazy guy type of self uh, every once in a while. He's come very far from Jaws the Revenge. Steve Martin? I don't I didn't no, remember uh, him. In- <laughs> Michael Caine. Steve Martin played the shark in Jaws oh, 3. Oh. <laughs> well, if you watch the bedtime story, you will find that the Dr. Shofazen the third. Uh, whipping scene is far better in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and you will find uh, new genius in that, uh, the way that those two played it. So it was very, very well done. I think um, David Niven would play an excellent role, too. I he did. It. He actually, and I'm not a Niven fan, but he played it really well. But Michael Caine was equal to the task, if not better. He just has that class. He's a very, very good, elegant, uh, straight uh, arist- aristocratic type of personality that you kind of need as the straight man to the wild and crazy Steve Martin. And I think that they played off one another so well. And, and I think it made a really good, it, it made a really nice yin and yang for the movie. Because if you would have had Kane pulling too many pranks or you would have had Martin be too straight, you would have had a completely different story. And I don't think you would have had the the humor that it ended up with in the end. Uh, but it, it does take three to make the story work. And that comes down to Glenn Headley. So what'd you guys think of her, uh, Matt? I thought she was really good. Um, I, I thought she, she, I mean, a, a little over the top at times, but I think she's really funny. And I think she had good, good on-screen charisma with both of the guys. So I, I really liked it. No, I, I will agree that it, there, there's so much misdirect in this film. And she the, the way she speaks and kind of that kind of uh, a meek little voice that she looks like this little, you know, doe or this deer in the headlights. And when the reality, she's as, as much as a, a cobra as the other two. And that that's the, the success of this film is the audience being misdirected. Of, by the way, if we ruined it for anyone who hadn't seen it in 35 years. but uh, <laughs> They missed their chance. Yeah, I know. Uh, so it, it's I guess it's only 31. Uh, but that, I think that was outstanding casting and picking someone that essentially almost an unknown and uh, someone who looks the the innocent, the damsel in distress, if you will. Well, yeah, I mean, look at that opening scene when they first introduced her where she just uh, had tripped over her own stuff. You know, that that's a great introduction. And the it is a great misdirect because you think, oh, here's two con men going for this uh, klutzy woman. And uh, I think it was a perfect way to introduce her. And I think she, uh, for me, she was the best thing about this film. In hindsight, uh, you know, after multiple viewings where you see her, the subtleties of her performance. Would you guys have seen somebody else in the role? (laughs) (laughs) Crickets, crickets. No, I don't think so. No, I mean, I could see I'm sure others could do it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at a certain point is, is what kind of 80s celebrity would you have of the day? Someone like a Michelle Pfeiffer might be a little too glamorous for that. Leah Thompson, I could see doing it. Mm-hmm. I, I think you could have some others. Um, Ali Sheedy. 
Who else? I think they all would have been a little too young at that time. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Shelly Duvall, Patrick Shelly Duvall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> Completely different movie. Well, um, they used that. Uh, the Glenn character is actually the biggest difference between the bedtime story and Dirty's Rotten Scoundrels because the Shirley Jones character, who was about the same age as Brando, was significantly younger than David Niven. In this one, I think they kept Glenn was closer in age to both Steve and uh, Michael Caine. They weren't that far apart age wise, I could tell. But in the bedtime story, they have her basically as the innocent soap queen. That really isn't a soap queen, but it, the ending is completely different in the two stories. And the Glenn Headley has so much more bite, so much more greatness to it than the bedtime story. And I think that's where it it turned its on turned it on its head and did a much better job in the end. So that's the newer version got uh, plus marks for me in that. But as far as the story, does anybody have any likes, dislikes? What do you guys think of it? I mean, I think the story is is perfectly fine. I have no problems with the story about two con men trying to compete uh, for territory. Uh, it's it's pretty basic, but it's it's ripe with uh, comic potential. So I, I have no issues with the story. I even think the setting was uh, kind of interesting as well because uh, it, at least you have Steve Martin being the newcomer out of his element uh, and this more senior con man who's living the lush life. Uh, it, almost in his retirement years and drawing on a little bit of salary here and there by his little cons on uh, women of uh, looking for excitement or desperation in some way. I, so I, I, th- I think the story was uh, fine. I had no issues with the story. It's, it's, I, I, sometimes I think it, w- it, it kind of crossed over into this little bit, wants to be a little, little bit more serious than it actually is, and, and, that, and that's my fault with it when it goes a little too slapsticky. Have you guys ever noticed that Frank Oz's uh, directors, uh, as a director, takes movies along those that direction where he goes serious and then not so serious? I mean, I think House Sitter has an element of that with Steve Martin a few years yeah. later. Um, that there, there's very much some seriousness to that one. Little Shop of Horrors. I mean, people die, so I guess that's, <laughs> there's a little bit of seriousness in that. But yeah, Chris, what do you think of the story? The did you like it? Uh, what worked and didn't work? I, I enjoyed it. I'm pretty much along the lines of Patrick. The only thing that kind of I've never really understood is why would he allow um, so so many people to know his actual home base, his his um, his mansion? You know, especially the the Greek uh, person they're going to swindle at the end. It, to me, it seems a lot rather risky, and he doesn't seem like a person that would take risks like that. So that's really the only thing that stood out to me as being a little odd. Yeah, that that would be unwise. <laughs> now that's succinct. <laughs> so, um, d- did you guys like the settings of the movie? Did you like the the cinematography, the locations, any of that? Was that positive, negative? I loved I loved the the scenery they shot. I really like the um the the location they found for his house out there with with the water. Um, in fact, so I watched the trailer. What is it? Is it, what's the new one called? The hustle. The hustle. The hustle. And I immediately noticed, you know, they they found a similar kind of location for the the little breakfast area out there, and it immediately went back to this movie, and 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 it made me want to watch the new one just because of that more than anything. 
So I love the I love the French Riviera uh, scenery they found. Oh yeah, it was great. You know the the worst thing about it is the hotel, and that's still an elegant uh, setting. So I bet they had a wonderful time making this film. I, I couldn't imagine a better place to make a movie. The weather seemed perfect. Everything was beautiful, and it seemed like a nice laid back environment to be in. Well, absolutely. I mean, that was what I was kind of just saying is I think the set uh, where they set the film was outstanding. I thought the visuals were outstanding uh, without a doubt. In fact, we know uh, based off the fact that Michael Caine agreed to do the film because he got to stay on the French Riviera for three months uh, next door to one of his friends, Roger Moore. So uh, that that was his incentive to do it, which is also was his incentive to do Jaws for the revenge is because it was going to be shot in the Bahamas. So sometimes where it's shot isn't that important if you're thinking about longevity in your career. But who am I to criticize a guy who's been making movies since the 60s? So. <laughs> Well, I have to say, when Steve Martin, when he comes up and says, you know, I'm, I'm, I want you to mold me and, and, you know, teach me what you're, what you know, he says, well, what do you want? He says, I want this, and he stood out in front of the Riviera and just, you know, his, just opened his arms, and there's this gorgeous scene looking out onto the Riviera itself. Was that was just awe-inspiring to me. So it was really a beautiful movie, I thought, and you know, I. You talked about the t- the trailer where they're just walking along the ocean and then you know they they do dastardly things. That is a part of the marketing that I think that this movie really did do right was they 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 put it the setting right. They chose to make it you know they didn't put them in New York City or you know or the Bahamas you know for cocktail or anything along those lines. They put them in the French Riviera, which is a romantic, beautiful setting that most. Americans at least would love, but most international people would know and they would flock to. So I thought it was a really uh, inspired location for them to choose. And granted, it was in Bedtime Story. That's the same location exactly. Same same city, Beaumont-sur-Mer is mentioned and so on. But they're beautiful settings, beautiful place. So um, we touched on Frank, Frank Oz. Uh, what did you guys think of the music? Did, it, that, did the soundtrack, anything stand out to you? Good, bad? It was well, Frank Ozzy. <laughs> <laughs> it was some waka waka waka. Yeah, I was gonna say, what is that waka waka waka? <laughs> you know, I think you might have asked the wrong set of guys because it's usually you, Shane, and maybe Chad who uh, <laughs> noticed the music. To me, um, it didn't take me out of it. It didn't um, add anything to it. So I'm going to say that's a win. Um, I'm I'm not a big music person. Did they have any '80s montage music? I'm trying to think now. Well, when they're kind of he's training or getting uh, Steve Martin uh, dressed and showing him how to stand and walk, there was a little bit of a montage there. That hair gel that he was putting in, oh, man, I didn't I don't remember him putting that much crap in his hair. I'm like, oh, wow. (laughs) The one where uh, he's running around with the other woman's money before he's arrested. They have that montage. Mm -hmm. They have the, the 80s going on. Any other questions or any other remarks before we start going into the end? I just want to mention, um, you know, this is the first time I've seen this post Star Wars prequels. And (laughs) Ian McDermott's Arthur character is completely different to me. Now, I have trouble watching him in a role without thinking that he is emperor, emperor, emperor. emperor. 
you know, it, it's very funny to me. And he, he was a pretty, I mean, he was still a little prick at times, but he was still a, a humble servant. And um, I don't know if that's what got him the role for being that senator because, you know, there's a lot of parallels. But to me, his role is a little bit more interesting now that uh, because he's typecast as the emperor forever now. Well, I think he got cast as the senator because he played the emperor in Return of the Jedi. So, but with a ton of makeup, and and that's why it was a woman in Empire Strikes Back, right? Uh, the original one? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, was I it? Think it was, I think it was a woman that they dressed yeah, up it, as the emperor. It back. was not him in the original release. They went right. back and redid it and put him in uh, mm-hmm. in the two thousands. But Chris, I have the exact opposite reaction. Is I, you know, watching the, the credits or looking it up on IMDb right before I watched it, I saw, oh, he's in this. Oh, I got to watch for him. And I didn't even notice him. I, I mean, he, he really? did exactly what he was supposed to do. He's supposed to be, the, you know, a butler, you know, a servant. And you're not supposed to pay attention to those those yeah. those people that, you know, that's that's they're supposed to be essentially part of the. The, the decor for all intents and purposes. And I was paying attention to Michael Caine and Steve Martin that much that I went, where was Ian McDermott? And I had to go back and look at the, <laughs> the credit, you know, IMDB and he's, Oh, he was Arthur the Butler. Oh, okay. You know, like I, I you know, I didn't even, he didn't even phase me. What amuses me as well is that he is, when he filmed this, he was about three, maybe four years younger than we are now. And he still looks extremely oh, yeah, he- old in this. <laughs> yeah, he did. He looks pretty old. I would never have guessed that he was that young at that point. He was like 44 and I think Steve Martin was about the same age. Matt, what'd you think of the Emperor? I didn't I didn't notice him at all. <laughs> I didn't recognize him. <laughs> you know, I, I was reading that he was supposed to be something like the John Gielgud character from Arthur and I actually got a, a more of a uh, feel for Trading Places, the, yes. uh, the butler in that. Uh, seemed to be a little bit closer to the way he played it. He wasn't quite as cynical, but he was still a bit of a put on, put upon type servant. But yeah, I, I agree. I, he wasn't supposed to be a big character and you're not supposed to take away from the two main guys. So I noticed he was there because of his face, but he didn't stand out as far as uh, the acting is concerned. And the rest of the, the cast, I think was, they, they did their jobs, but nothing, nothing really outstanding. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, no one else really stood out to me. I mean, the the three and Ian McDermott didn't stand out to to me as well because uh, I obviously didn't even know it was him. But yeah, the three leads were the the absolute standouts, and they kind of whenever they were on screen, my eyes drawn to them. Exactly. So after all said and done, uh, does it stand the test of time? And would you recommend this movie to the next generation that is about to be put upon with the Rebel Wilson and who else was it? You said Anne Hathaway. The, Anne Hathaway. Uh, let's go, Matt. Oh, this movie stands the test of time. This movie is is as watchable today as it was then. I think it's I think it's great. And um, yes, the next generation should watch it. So just so they probably understand how much less funny um, Anne Hathaway and uh, <laughs> Rebel Wilson will be compared to this movie. Uh, Chris? Yeah, I'll keep an open mind, but I think it's going to be pretty hard to top this. This is one of my favorite films as a kid, and it's something that uh, you know, I hadn't seen it in a, a long, long time, and 
it didn't age a bit to me. It's pretty timeless. I think that the benefit of the setting, uh, since that's a pretty timeless uh, setting as well, I think this just works all the way around. It's a great comedy. And um, although it's not a top 100 film for me, it's one that I look back at very fondly. It definitely stands a test of time. Patrick? All right. Obviously, a film, as I've already articulated, that I did not like very much in its time. But I do think it does stand the test of time. I think this film uh, ages very well. I think it's uh, it's got a lot of good funny parts. It's definitely worth a watch. Uh, I agree with Chris. It's not a top 100 film, but I, I enjoyed it. And I... I was a little disappointed to find that it was a remake itself because I was going to be critical of the fact that it was being remade with Rebel Wilson and Anne Hathaway. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, I guess, you know, you just have to deal with it that they just keep remaking the same films over and over again. Uh, I have not seen that since it's coming out today, and I uh, am not eager to see it uh, other than a whipping scene where Anne Hathaway whips Rebel Wilson maybe to prevent her from ever making a movie again. What, whatever it takes, <laughs> I, I'm fine for it. But seeing her getting being in pain as much as I'm being in pain for watching her in most films, uh, I know Chris is sometimes critical of like you know that the fact that they're remaking it and just casting all the women for the sake of casting a, a woman in the role. I think this could work with women. I just I, I don't have a problem with Anne Hathaway. Sorry, Matt. It's Rebel Wilson that I go. Ugh. You know, you you could have found someone that was so much better to play that role. That, you know, it's that. I I like Anne Hathaway. She's just probably not going to make me laugh at any point in her lifetime or mine. (laughs) (laughs) I can't think of off the top of her head anything a comedy that I can think is outstanding that I like. But seen her in dramas, I like. But I can't think of Rebel Wilson in anything a commercial or anything that I've ever liked. That's so. But, uh, yeah, I do think it stands the test of time, and probably rather than going to see The Hustle, go back and rewatch Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Or The Bedtime Story. Or The Bedtime Stories, which I have not seen, but apparently yes. is available for free on YouTube, so I will probably yep. be catching a watch of that pretty soon. You, you should watch that one. Um, and you would have to be second in line to Rebel Wilson, the, the hate line for Rebel Wilson behind Shane A., so. Yeah, yeah, no, I can't. You know, Shane A, who has to point out every time an Australian uh, possibly serves some food to the actors in a film uh, cast, is comes out and he comes out against anti. Re- very, very anti. As far Wilson. as I can tell, there's only one Australian person in any occupation that Shane doesn't like, <laughs> and it's Rebel Wilson. Very, very true. Very true. So um, I, too, uh, believe this does stand the test of time. Uh, Even after watching the original uh, Bedtime Story to this, I still think this is the better movie of the two. Uh, They're very, very similar. They share the same storyline up up until the end. Um, But I think that the cast is what makes me love this one so much more besides the fact the history and the fact that my my family loves this movie as much as i do as much as you guys do um i agree this is a timeless movie um even the styles are really not that out of style the setting is incredible uh it, it i would i'd go there today to see exactly the same place um it's just a, a stunning movie very funny uh, makes makes me laugh every time even to this day i still laugh at scenes just because uh they're they're just 
they they remind me of of humor and and you know a, a lighter time. So yeah, excellent movie. It does stand the test of time. Uh, so I guess we're unanimous on that. So uh, let me do let me ask this though. Um, since we do we talked about the Rebel Wilson and Hathaway version, um, this movie does touch on some sexist tones i mean you you have some men that are taking advantage of some women and obviously in the new one we're going to see some women taking advantage of the men do you think that that is uh politically correct or does that have a place in this world uh in in this movie's world what do you guys think a good comedy is not politically correct i'd be a little sad if they don't go for it yeah, I, well, I, w- I would yeah. agree with Chris. Is it for it, for the comedy to work for the competition? I mean, I guess you could have one of the characters being a lesbian, but it would be a very very different film. And uh, but I think for for it to, to have the storyline to actually have worked successfully, it has to be the two main characters have to be of the uh, same sex. So uh, it, for the female leads, it's they both have to be female. For the male leads, it has to be both both be male. I, I think Chris is exactly right, though. Comedy has to be non-PC. But the whole punchline to this entire movie was that was that they got their comeuppance and that their their underestimation of the woman was what did them in in the end anyway. So I don't think this movie is as non-PC in the end as as some of its themes might have been along the way. I mean, it's, I agree with Matt. It's, it's turning it on its head very, you know, it's the idea that it was appealing to a non-PC audience in the 80s that it was, has a, an expectation of who the characters are and turns it on its head, where I don't think that's going to work as well with two, fem, two female leads, but who knows? Maybe they're changing the story somewhat as well. Well, Ghostbusters, they made fun of uh, the Chris Hemsworth character uh, to the extreme, so maybe they're going to pull the same thing out here. I think Chris had the most fun Oh yeah, on that cast totally. Um, yes. And that movie was actually pretty decent. I liked it better mm-hmm. than the second Ghostbusters, not the first, but the second. Right. Oh yeah. First. Well, not treasured ground. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm with you guys, uh, and I I'm a little anti PC. I think sometimes you just gotta throw things out the window and just watch entertainment for entertainment's sake. And I think this movie. Uh, hit the sweet spot. I think it. You've got the characters. They didn't go overboard with it. They just made it fun. So yeah, I, I think this is gonna. This was a, a good one, and I think I hope that the new one will will tread similar ground and do it right. But uh, I, my, I I don't have high hopes, which <laughs> maybe that'll be a good thing when I watch it. All right, that does it for our review of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Please let us know what you think of this film in the comments section on our website and rate it from one to five stars on that page as well. If you have any review requests for movies from the 80s, please send us an email at comments at moviehousememories.com with your name and movie pick. And finally, if you're of the social media persuasion, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. So please give us a follow when you find us. So that's it for today. Until next time, I'm Bobby. I'm Chris. I'm messaging this soap heiress right now online. (laughs) And I'm Patrick. All right. And we have to get out of here and you guys are invited.
This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is provided courtesy of Alexander Nakaranda at SerpentSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the MHM Podcast Network, Lunchtime Movie Review, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. <laughs>